Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Modern Good. I'm here with Stephanie Wynn. She is the host of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. She is the associate producer of Affirmation Generation, a movie that we're going to be discussing at length today. In Oregon, she is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Stephanie has a small online private practice called Real Talk Therapy PDX. She offers therapy without ideology. Stephanie has dedicated a portion of her career towards advocating for the needs of survivors of gender malpractice and families that have been impacted by the ideological capture of the counseling profession. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on The Modern Good today. I feel like this has been a long time coming. What a great introduction. Thanks so much for having me. I keep seeing you on all of our other guests that we've had in the last six months. I keep seeing you kind of in a little circuit where I just saw you with Simon. I believe you know Pamela... Garfield Yeager. We adore her. We've had her on our show. So I actually just got to watch Affirmation Generation yesterday. And even from the brief trailer, it really pulls you in. So just wanted to congratulate you on bringing that all the way through. I know creating a documentary is not an easy feat and you did something really fantastic there. Thank you. Well, I'll accept that on behalf of our hardworking team. It's, it's an honor that they've chosen me to sort of be the public face of the film, but we have some very hardworking people behind the scenes. Amazing. And did you actually get to have a big public launch where you did any sort of movie theaters or was it all online? It's interesting that you ask that because as you can imagine in today's climate, it is really hard to gather people together in person to discuss these issues without um, fear of opposition, sometimes even violent opposition. So I'm proud that here in Portland, Oregon, of all places, we were actually able to put together D-Trans Awareness Day. Uh, It took a lot of work behind the scenes, though, because we did not publicize it. We didn't post a location. We knew that that would be asking for trouble. Instead, I DM'd every gender-critical person in 50 miles of Portland that I could find to pull this event together. Um, So we did have that on uh, D-Trans Awareness Day, March 13th. That was exciting. There was also a showing in Texas in conjunction with the event put on by Partners for Ethical Care there recently, but that we ran into some problems. Activists got the theater to cancel the event out of fear for safety, and there was some workarounds, but we've shifted towards a mostly online strategy for now. Of course, we definitely encourage people to organize events in their home, and if you have access to a theater or a large venue and you want to put something together, by all means, let us know how we can support you. We will definitely go for that here in Northern Idaho. I'll connect with you about it after the show because I think it would do incredibly well here. Oh, cool. And I, I doubt we'd get too much opposition. We live in a pretty freedom-minded area of the country. So we'll oh, and I happens. forgot to mention that we, also, we have been shown at film festivals. That's amazing. And how has it been received? Honestly, uh... I've heard that it's gone really well. I haven't been there. I've just, I'm just getting the reports. Our team is busy and I don't always get all the details, but, um, but I think we've gotten some awards already. That's very exciting. I can see why just from watching it last night. So I want to start off with understanding why specifically in your practice, you felt drawn to people that were impacted by gender malpractice. How did that 
kind of fall into your lap? Was that a client base that you served intentionally or did that just happen to be a journey that you went on in your therapy practice? I keep my practice pretty small um, and I do charge normal fees because my clinical work supports a lot of the other stuff I do. So um, part of my transformation over the last few years has come from this recognition that there were these trends in our fields that I was unwittingly participating in or maybe I could say like half-wittingly participating in as I got sucked into it as so many other therapists did. And when I realized what was happening on the other side that I wasn't seeing, um, when I when I realized what was happening to people who regretted their so-called gender-affirming care or who suffered from it, I realized I had to stop and reorient and figure out what I was doing and what was happening to our field. And um, my work with detransitioners, while I have done some clinical work with detransitioners, it's mostly been the advocacy stuff. It's been through friendship and community and helping them find resources and interviewing them on my podcast and highlighting their stories. And so that's where I donate my time. And I realized that as much as I would love to help more detransitioners clinically, there are many detransitioners who will never talk to a therapist again. So this is my way of sort of... Um, atoning for the sins of my field, if you will, my, my way of personally making amends for the harm that's been caused by my own profession that I was at one point complicit in, not to a large degree, but to some degree. And so I sort of volunteer my time to help connect detransitioners to resources, help tell their stories and things, even knowing that many detransitioners have completely lost trust in therapists because if there's anything that they can find that they can put their trust in, community or health providers or anything that's going to help them get their strength of spirit back, then that's um, something I'd like to help with. Well, that's very commendable. And people that follow our show know that Matt Ray, one of our guests back in September, is currently going through it. So just want to send some love to Matt Ray on this episode. Have you connected with Matt yet? You know, I've been I've been tracking Matt's story a little bit, and when I was preparing to interview with you, that was the first episode I listened to because, um, just like you said, we have all these overlapping guests, and I was looking through thinking, hmm, out of all the, because I wanted to get to know your interview style, and I also wanted to get to know, when I, when I saw Matt, I was like, I need to hear Matt's story because I've been seeing, um, there was a really disturbing social media post that you probably saw where Matt showed that Matt was having seizures. Mm -hmm. as a result of testosterone. Um, and so it seems like, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, you interviewed Matt back in September, and it's been since then uh, that Matt has decided to stop taking cross-sex hormones and go through whatever detransitioning looks like for Matt, which I know it's different for everyone. Yes. And I, I think from at least what Matt shared with me and online publicly, I think he believes he's going through this experience really to be used as a public-facing figure of what it's like to go from who Matt was and how he was identifying then all the way through the hardship of what can happen medically when you do make this sort of decision, hormonally speaking. So I, he does seem to have a very positive attitude about it. And I think he's willing to martyr himself, so to speak, to help share his journey with people and sound the alarm. Because I think that's all Matt's been trying to do the whole time is just say, hey, something's not quite right here. We need to protect children. And I do think that no matter how people feel about assisting adults with gender-affirming medicine and hormone treatments and so on, 
the idea that we are so flippant about doing this to young children should be extremely concerning. Were, was that, was the child aspect of it what kind of pushed you over the edge or was it experiencing the detransitioners medical issues? Like what was the tipping point for you that made you say, okay, something's not quite right. I need to take a second look. So I was working with many trans identifying people between I would say 2017 and 2020. Um, it was partly because I was, ironically, I was like one of the most liberal progressive people in the company of over 300 therapists that I worked for. And uh, there was a time that a colleague was leaving and just assumed I would be the best fit for all of her trans clients, that she, she was the most affirming person in the practice. So I ended up seeing a lot of trans people and I operated under that affirmation model. Now, I didn't recommend medical procedures. I didn't go to the training that we were encouraged to go to to write those letters. And thank goodness I didn't in retrospect. But I think I, I really operated in good faith, believing that although it is kind of incredulous, you know, I think therapists tend to be open-minded people. And if you're being told at these trainings, like the one that I did go to, that this is people's experience, you need to believe it, um, you're trying to do right by people, right? And But I always felt like we couldn't really talk about the elephant in the room. And I felt like it wasn't making much progress, even though I was doing all the things you're supposed to do when you're providing therapy to trans-identified people, I felt like we weren't making progress and we weren't talking about the real issues. And um, and it was as soon as I learned about detransitioners, that they exist in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, that really made my ears perk up. And the first context in which I heard that they exist at all was the context of hearing that they're, they were being silenced. And so it was like, oh, there is this whole other side of the story, and I need to find out about that. Because on its surface, this message that people are really going to be happier and healthier and better off if you affirm them and trans them, on the surface, it is an incredulous claim. But if you don't have any evidence to contradict that claim, and you're being told this is what a good therapist does, and you go along with it until you see that there is another side to that story. So as soon as I learned in 2020, that detransitioners exist and that they were being silenced, I sort of went on a YouTube binge trying to soak up all the stories that I could. So this was all happening outside of therapy, while at the same time, I at that point was in private practice. So I, I had some say over which clients I took on and I just decided I'm gonna proceed with caution because I'm not sure how I wanna work with this issue right now. So I'm just not going to um, work with gender dysphoria right now while I'm figuring stuff out. Um, Ultimately, I had to not work with people under 18 anymore because our state is one of many states that is very confused about this term conversion therapy mm -hmm. um, and because I'm at this point Googleable. Uh, but it was really about learning about detransitioners and seeing how scarred they'd been by the medical stuff, but also by the mental health side of things that made me realize what our field, my, my field was doing to them and that I couldn't participate in that anymore. You talked about when you were serving trans-identified people that you couldn't address the elephant in the room. Could you give us a brief summary of some things that might be covered under the elephant in the room? Yeah, um, so without going into specifics, internalized homophobia, matters of sexual identity, um, autism, OCD, sexual trauma, 
trauma in general, family conflict, um, using the identity to drive a wedge when there's already triangulation and, and drama happening. Um, and and the actual the actual medical trauma itself of going through these hormones and surgeries. So there's a, there's a cognitive dissonance you're picking up on there because someone's telling you that this is the thing that they have believed for such a long time will help them. So then they're kind of deeply psychologically invested in believing mm. and in that placebo effect of these drugs and surgeries. And so then it felt like we also couldn't talk about um, how painful or difficult or scary that was or the, the consequences or um, it also seemed to me in many cases like there was um, you know something we don't really talk a lot about when we talk about the mental health of trans identified people is the overlap with obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. and we know that uh, people on the autism spectrum have much higher rates of identifying as trans. We also know that autism has a high comorbidity rate with obsessive compulsive disorder. We know all these cluster with body dysmorphia and eating disorders, which I was also seeing, by the way, and some Mm -hmm. really confusing messages about eating disorders. But noticing that sort of obsessive compulsive thought loop just being reinforced by the ideation around being Mm -hmm. trans identified and noticing how this was making people very neurotic and unable to um, really follow the kind of general, the general good mental health advice you would give anyone with regard to, you know, trying to break free of cycles of rumination, of self-focus, self-criticism, of um, being self-conscious, right? All, All the fixation on the self really isn't very healthy and if you want to have a healthy happy life it's better to to have more curiosity and engagement with the world and other people so i was also noticing that people during crucial developmental periods where identity is forming where relationships are forming instead of focusing on the things that build identity through character through competence through meaningful engagement in the world and relationships with other people instead of engaging in those critical developmental processes that are so important for laying a good foundation for adult life people were focused on matters of identity self appearance and things like that which is just regardless of whether you believe in any of the tenets of gender ideology just not a good recipe for mental health where do you think we took this turn because for example working with a client that has OCD and intrusive thoughts, obviously you would take the approach that you just described and help them understand how to separate themselves from the thoughts, right? Not become the thoughts, but actually draw some sort of boundary and understand what an intrusive thought pattern is versus who I am individually. Where did the field stop treating the individual that way just because of the gender ideology? Where did that turn happen? Well, before we start recording, you had mentioned some thoughts that you have on the the origins of this transformation in the field, and I kind of want to let you introduce it that way because um, you you had mentioned your take on humanistic therapy, and I think that some of the I think some of the good principles of humanistic therapy that work well in certain contexts have been manipulated to work differently in others. So, do you want to go there now? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think you just basically summed it right up perfectly. So when I was leading our last practitioner training, we were taking a look at all the different psychological theories and approaches, and it dawned on me when I was going through the summary of the humanistic approach how 
it really could serve as that perfect inoculation to the petri dish of what we're experiencing right now. So I think sometimes when we when we take an approach that is very focused on trying to build rapport and help affirm that person in whatever they're thinking or feeling about themselves instead of trying to help them create separation or distinction between thoughts that they're having and who they innately are, I think we start to get ourselves into a bit of a predicament. And that was the the initial sense that I got from looking at the humanistic approach is that while certainly it's a very heart-centered approach and I can see where it would offer very compassionate care, I could see where that could easily get weaponized and snowball into what we're experiencing today. So from your professional opinion, how would you describe the humanistic approach and how what is the architecture of it that you could see now that we're having this discussion it could kind of create that snowballing effect sure well i think when we think of humanistic therapy we think of carl rogers and his whole kind of personality is what you typically think about when you think about a therapist like warm caring open-minded attentive good listener good at mirroring reflecting soothing validating and and i think that the the basic principles of humanistic therapy are they're rooted in a charitable attitude that i think it's it's good to go through life with the attitude that most people deserve a charitable attitude Mm -hmm. until they prove to us otherwise right and i think um that carl rogers's approach to humanistic or person-centered or client-centered psychotherapy sort of rests on the assumption that if you provide people with the right ingredients um then they can take it from there right that it's it's not this kind of top-down approach that we could criti- we could criticize things that feel top-down about more structured modalities. But it's more that if you provide this bottom-up support, that that creates the space in which people can change. And uh, we even have the, the notion of the paradox of change, right? That when I feel totally accepted as I am, that's when I'm free to change. And I think this works for a lot of people. Now, he also said that the three most important qualities in a therapist are empathy, genuineness, and unconditional positive regard. Again, shoring someone up from from the bottom up. And many people have missing needs for those, to, to feel seen and accepted in a charitable light. And I do think that there are many people who can utilize that material well, sort of like I don't know, like a plant that's scraggly if it's in poor soil, where if, if you fertilize the soil and you give it what it needs, it can manifest its full potential. But that that was also coming from a time when the culture was different. So mm-hmm. this framework doesn't take into account whether the culture is incentivizing and supporting that positive growth in other ways. I think we currently live in a cultural environment that disincentivizes positive growth and incentivizes a victim mentality. But I will say that with these principles of empathy, genuineness, and unconditional positive regard, I know you have some some interesting points to make about how humanistic therapy sort of lays the groundwork for these ideologies to come in, but I actually think that the ideology is pretty antithetical to these principles, especially the genuineness piece, right? So genuineness is also sometimes called congruence. 
And I, I do have personal experience as a therapist that my genuineness or my congruence does seem to be a, an essential ingredient in helping many of my patients to heal. Now, this ideology, it sort of um, exaggerates and distorts the empathy and unconditional positive regard things that rather than having empathy for the human experience and unconditional positive regard for the soul that is suffering, it's as if we're expected to have unconditional positive regard for the most superficial layers of the personality, for the defense mechanisms, for the false self, right? I don't think that's what Carl Rogers meant. I don't think that's what a good therapist does. I don't think a good therapist has unconditional positive regard for whatever wacky personality someone shows up with, but but to recognize that there is a, a suffering human soul in front of you, and they're suffering in part because of some of the personality constructs and defenses that they've put up. And the genuineness piece, though, that I keep trying to talk about is that I, I feel like we're being asked to lie. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, and, and this was part of why I had to change the way I practice, because I felt like it couldn't be genuine and get to the root of the issues that were driving people to transition. Now, now that I'm working with, among other things, ROGD parents, I can be completely genuine with them because <laughs> I do share their concern for their children. And when there is empathy for the suffering, unconditional positive regard for the suffering human soul and and genuineness, then you then you get I I do think that you can get kind of this optimal environment that does make room to challenge people because people aren't just there to have their egos shored up. They aren't, aren't just there to hear what they already think. They do need a different perspective and that's where the therapist should come in. Well, and I think here here's where this gets interesting. I completely agree with somebody with your perspective on the matter is still able to, in fact, take a humanistic approach and have that work for them. I think where we get into rough water is where somebody is programmatically believing that empathy only means this or positive regard only means this, right? And I think the way this has kind of snowballed out of control, I think a lot of therapists that I've come in contact with, those definitions for them are very different than they are for you. So it absolutely could get into that space of affirming to be empathetic, affirming to have high regard for their experience. So I think where you've come to in your perspective, certainly what you've just described, I can see being exactly what should be done. And I agree that that was certainly not his original intent when he created the humanistic approach. But I do think that there's some elements there where of all the theories, the approach to not actually try to create that separation, but instead really focus on creating, like you said, that kind of that base foundation. I think a lot of therapists that are ideologically captured, once you start to do it that way, then I think you end up tiptoeing around or even not being able to move into cognitive dissonance on things that don't make sense, right? Because I've seen therapists have full backing for things that just rationally don't make sense. Have you, have you come into contact with that? I love that you brought up cognitive dissonance because it's it's a sign of it's a sign that you're a normal human being if you experience cognitive dissonance between um 
maybe different beliefs and experiences and feelings you have that don't all quite line up. And one of the best things a therapist can possibly do for someone is help create the right environment and conditions for someone to be able to explore their cognitive dissonance in a way that helps them grow. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we, uh, we have all these psychological defense mechanisms as more kind of primitive ways of coping with cognitive dissonance. So, for example... Um, let's say I am a therapy patient and I hold a view that my therapist is a good person because I like her and she's always been nice and helpful to me. And, uh, I also hold a view that, uh, to use a thought terminating cliche slogan, trans rights are human rights. Trans women are women. I believe in all of this stuff that I've been fed by liberal media about what's going on with the gender issue. Okay, now I find out one day that my therapist is concerned about the direction that the field is heading. Cognitive dissonance is these two things don't match up. Mm -hmm. I hold on the one hand a belief that my therapist is a good person. On the other hand, I hold a belief that good people believe X and don't believe Y. So what do I do with that cognitive dissonance? Well, if I'm able to find the psychological maturity to grapple with my therapist and have a conversation about it, maybe a really uncomfortable conversation, but a conversation nonetheless, then I can maybe expand my viewpoint. Now I'm I'm giving you know a source of cognizance that hold that hits close to home for me personally, but this could play out with anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I believe good people believe this. I believe this person's a good person, then I find out they don't believe this, right? So if we're able to grapple with these conflicting ideas, then we can actually learn new things. We can expand our perspective. But what we what we too often do instead is we sort of collapse to make our existing worldview fit, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how can I make my existing worldview fit? Well, I decide that my therapist is now evil. I put her in the evil camp. I was wrong all along. Mm-hmm. I was wrong about who she was because only evil people believe those things. And now I have this new trauma. <laughs> I have this new trauma that I spent the last year or whatever confiding in this person thinking she was good. And now I feel traumatized by this. So I walk away with even more cognitive dissonance because I live in an unsafe world, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, I'm just giving this as an example of uh, the sorts of ethical situations that come up, but also that um, cognitive dissonance is a major issue. And it's something that I help parents work with with the ROGD parents because their kids obviously have some deeply repressed cognitive dissonance. When it comes to body modification, that's a major decision. And anyone who's got any degree of psychological maturity, which is not a lot of teenagers, but you know, any reasonable human being you would think would have some degree of uh, ambivalence, some mixed feelings, doubts, or insecurities about the idea of embarking on a lifelong pathway or making a major decision. So of course there's a cognitive dissonance in that, but what do they do is the psychological defense mechanism, the primitive one, comes in and splits off that ambivalence, projects it onto the parents or the um, right-wing politicians or whoever they view as the enemy 
right? The enemy that doesn't support their so-called gender-affirming care. And by splitting and projecting their own ambivalence onto other people, they don't have to grapple with the fact that there's an internal cognitive dissonance between the part of them that thinks so-called gender-affirming care is life-saving, that thinks I really am a boy, or whatever it is, and the part of them that is questioning this, however unconsciously. I'm not sure if that answered your question. I feel like I took it in a different direction because you said cognitive dissonance and that sparked that for me. That's totally fine. I think that that was great. And it actually goes into a few other things that I want to talk about. So we have talked about rapid onset gender dysphoria on the show before. I wanted to get kind of your two cents on when this term started to be utilized and if in your professional opinion this is real in the sense of is this something that's manufactured or has a social contagion aspect or is this something that we just somehow were missing but was actually here all along? Rapid onset gender dysphoria is a term that was coined by physician scientist Lisa Littman, Dr. Lisa Littman, who's featured in our film Affirmation Generation. I believe she coined it in 2018. If I recall correctly, her two major studies were 2018 and 2021, but I could be wrong on the dates on those. And uh, she had noticed in her community that one after another family seemed to be popping off with suddenly my daughter is identifying as my son, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. She was noticing this trend that she'd never seen before. A lot of other adults, doctors, and parents were noticing the same thing. And so she studied it and she wrote a paper on it. A paper has been much maligned by the trans earth activist community, but it documents a phenomenon that is, is very, very clear. If you look at the exponential growth rates of trans identifying youth, you look at the exponential growth rates of gender clinics around the US, which you can, uh, gendermapper.org, I believe is the website where you can even see those pictures. There's been a 4,000% increase of teenage girls identifying as boys in a short period of time. And this is in comparison to, uh, I believe, like Ray Blanchard's research on gender dysphoria, which historically was predominantly males from an early age and could roughly be divided into two categories. So males with gender dysphoria from an early age who were behaving in stereotypically female ways, more interested in playing with girls' toys and things like that, um, those young men would typically grow up to be gay. And then um, there's auto also the autogynephilic um, transsexual male, which is uh, often we see this more as like a midlife crisis manifesting um, at that time in someone's life, although it can of course, be earlier. And this is the heterosexual male for whom it is a sexual fetish that he's erotically attracted to the idea of himself as a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, people don't want to talk about this in the mainstream media because it's not nice, but there is a high comorbidity rate between the autogynephilic transsexual male and narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. If you think about autogynephilia meaning in love with or erotically obsessed with the idea of oneself as a woman, that fits the myth of Narcissus perfectly. Narcissus fell in love with the image of himself. It's like, you can't make this stuff up. It's mm-hmm. literally, it's it's such a direct correlation. But you have these two kind of classical profiles where there's the gender atypical boy who might feel distressed about being a boy. And that distress could be socially mediated. It could be because the environment he, gr- he grows up in is one in which boys play with GI Joes and trucks and baseball and girls 
play house and dress up and the boy's like well I want to play house and dress up right so I'm a girl I must be a girl of course that's how a child's brain is going to think about it so those were kind of the typical profiles Um, you didn't really see gender dysphoria in girls but when you did it was more like the tomboy and again influenced by the environment right how how much is a girl receiving the message that young ladies may not go out in the mud and may not be aggressive and you know so of course the social messaging that a child's receiving about what it means to be a boy or a girl is going to influence whether they feel like they can be their own birth sex and be themselves or whether they have to identify into some other category at a time that they don't even understand the sex binary. So those are the typical profiles. And what Lisa Littman observed that she coined ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, was very different from any of that. It was kids with no history of childhood dysphoria and in much larger numbers than we'd ever seen. And the sex ratio was flipped. So it was mostly girls rather than being mostly boys. And If this weren't a phenomenon, why do we have groups like Parents of ROGD Kids, Mom Army, Dad Army, Our Duty Group, and all of these other groups of people who are observing the same things in their children? I'd like to kind of dig into the role that fantasy and intrusive thoughts plays in in ROGD, because it seems pretty intense. At this point, just for people that might be living under a rock or try to avoid mainstream media, which I commend you, you should keep doing that. We have situations now where kids are not just identifying as the opposite gender, but identifying as animals and and made up characters and taking on a full persona under said character or animal. My question to you is, now certain public schools are allowing this to happen. I saw a, a story about a child that was actually allowed to lap out of a, a bowl on the floor and meow to their teacher because they identified as a cat. At what point does this go from fantasy to psychosis? And is it your belief that these kids are, have they lost the line between real life and fantasy? Or is this actually potentially some sort of mental psychosis? It's a great question. I'd be hesitant to ascribe the psychosis label to anyone under the age of 20, frankly, but Mm -hmm. um, typically before the age of uh, 20, you might see some prodromal symptoms, but but it does make you wonder when the adults in the room have checked out and aren't aren't um, abiding by our duty to establish some sense of normalcy and structure for kids when when their imaginations are allowed to run wild without any boundaries around them, what does it, what is the impact? I mean, is this going to create semi-psychotic states in people who otherwise wouldn't have been prone to it? When you describe the role of fantasy, one thing that comes to mind is that although I, I don't, can't think of any parents I've worked with whose children have identified as cats or butterflies or whatever. Um, you know, all the parents I work with, their kids are identifying as the opposite sex or non-binary, something a little bit more mainstream. Um, you know, I when, I when I dig in with the parents I work with to what is your kid saying and doing and what patterns are you picking up on, we often get to this point where I find myself saying it sounds like it's not so much about being a guy as much as it's not about not being a girl mm-hmm. and when i say this it almost always resonates right and so there is this grass is greener 
mentality. There's a sense that choosing to be the opposite sex or non-binary or whatever is a way of kind of opting out of what's seen as getting the short end of the stick by being your natal sex. And so when you take that a step further and you start talking about these ridiculous made-up identities and neo-pronouns and, you know, 5,000 different kinds of flags, um, it seems like it's taking that a step further and the adults are enabling the sort of Peter Pan mentality in children. Of course, growing up is scary. And of course, it's going to be that much scarier when you're inundated with information like no generation has ever been inundated before. Right now, we have this dramatic mismatch between the rate at which we're taking in information about things happening around the world compared to our level of personal agency as we express in even small ways every day. So I personally think that if you want to support the development of robust mental health in a, in a young person, then you will sort of um, titrate the amount of stress they're exposed to with experiences that help them build the ability to know that they can count on themselves to handle that kind of stress, right? So we see a mess, what do we do? We clean it up. We see something broken, what do we do? We fix it. We see someone crying, what do we do? We figure out how we can comfort them. And as you gain competency, real world skills, I'm talking domestic skills, cooking, taking care of animals, gardening, um, building things, building creations with Legos could be really simple, but the more experiences, tactile, visceral experiences you have of developing a sense of competency and the sense that you are capable of solving problems with the right help, the more, the, the less daunting it is when you're faced with a new problem because you're like, I have a track record of solving problems, mm-hmm. right? But right now you have kids spending so much time on the internet seeing all of these things that are presented as problems from around the world, sounding off all these alarm bells in their nervous system, and they're not doing anything about it. So of course they feel helpless and inundated and adult life is really scary. The images girls see of what it is to be female are terrifying because of either seeing porn or even just being around boys who have seen porn. Even if the girls haven't seen porn themselves, the way boys behave once they start seeing porn. Um, and other, you know, images on Instagram. It's it's kind of like if you're if you're gonna be female, then there's all this endless pressure to look a certain way that you'll never be able to live up to. And what happens if you manage to look that way? You get sexually exploited. So (laughs) what's in it for me? Kind of, I'd rather not be female. I'd rather opt out. I'd rather be a boy. The boys is the way of opting out. And I think the same is in reverse for the boys with rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's like all this messaging around toxic masculinity well, I could just opt out and and be feminine and vulnerable, and then everyone wants to look after me and take care of my feelings and protect me, and I'm not subject to all this social pressure. How much of a correlation do you feel there is between hypersexuality and trans identification in specifically young people? I think it's a huge issue because kids are exposed to horrific sexual stuff before they've had a chance to discover their own sexual or romantic feelings. And I've I've heard too many stories in my clinical experience, as well as in learning about the world, of young women now where uh, boys are so pornified that 
Boys are now trying to choke girls in their first kiss or their first sexual experience. Um, there's the, the expectation is so toxic in high school and college cultures that girls should put out for boys and that th there's no expectation of commitment or even being treated well. So I think that the sexual climate it, it makes girls feel so unsafe to be girls, absolutely. Have you seen male transitioning to female clients who in fact desire to transition in part because they want to be objectified? So I, w I won't comment on any, you know, client stuff and, and it was years since yeah. I worked with that population yeah. and it was generally mostly females, but, yeah. but yeah, generally, uh, you know, what I see this more on, unfortunately, is social media of people, you know, screenshotting disturbing things that they see on Reddit <laughs> and circulating mm -hmm. them around gender critical Twitter. Absolutely. There's, there's this, um, and it's often these kind of very perverted, pornified incel males who have not made anything of themselves in the traditional way that males gain social status. Um, and instead, they're trying to use this kind of victimhood currency to get attention the other way. And and when a, when a man isn't socialized to develop a healthy sense of self-esteem through accomplishment, through things that legitimately earn respect, you know, whether it's playing an instrument, developing a sense of humor, becoming a good storyteller, or working out and making a lot of money, or, you know, whatever it is, there's so many ways that a male can genuinely build social capital that makes him respected, that makes him desired as a partner, desired as a friend, as an employee. And I think that when men instead develop addictions to porn, video games, substances, and they don't build genuine respectability, likability, hireability, mateability, then they're more prone to fall into sort of a distorted sense of self and develop narcissistic tendencies. And then they go down this pathway of perversion and we know with porn addiction that uh, it goes down this path just like with drugs. With a drug addiction, you develop tolerance and you need more and more of that drug in order to achieve an effect. Well, the same thing with porn. It's not just the quantity of the porn that increases. It's also the quality gets weirder and weirder and, and more exploitative and gross and harmful and illegal. And I think that it creates this sort of perversion and these neural pathways firing together and wiring together over time where a male's entire sense of identity, arousal, and everything becomes wrapped up in hurting and scaring and manipulating people. Completely agree. That sounds absolutely nightmarish. <laughs> Hopefully someone else is out there tackling some of these porn proliferation issues. I'm sure there are people doing such things. Um, next thing that I really wanted to dig into, because we do have a lot of therapists and mental health professionals that listen to the show. For somebody that is in the profession, and I think as you would describe, ideologically captured, what are some things that they can start to look to to pull themselves out or start to look for things that might be a mismatch from kind of reality experience versus what they're being told to do? Do you have any words of wisdom for therapists that are having trouble seeing their way out of the current affirmative care model? Mm -hmm. Well, you got into this work for a reason. 
because you are a healer, you are a good person who's curious and empathetic toward other people. You have skills, you have an intellect, you have critical reasoning abilities. You also have weaknesses that can be exploited. We all do. Think about it like how a virus is more likely to infect you if your immune system is low, right? If you haven't slept, you haven't been eating well, you've been under a lot of stress. A mind virus is more likely to infect you at your psychological weak points. And the very things that can make us really good as healers our openness especially, our openness, empathy, modesty, humility, um, all of these are traits that can be exploited by mind viruses that do harm. And so you have a responsibility as a therapist to balance yourself. We talk about balance and self-care in the profession. We talk about managing stress and going for walks and meditation and all that kind of stuff. But think about also psychologically, what do you need to do to balance your own temperamental traits? If you're a highly agreeable person, maybe you've learned some things from working with your highly agreeable clients and seeing yourself in them, right? Seeing those clients who are so open-minded that they let themselves get walked all over. Do you see yourself in that? Because I think a lot of therapists do. And I've learned a lot about assertiveness and um, psychological warfare even through um, working with highly agreeable people. So if this is resonating, now this isn't going to be the case for all therapists, but if you are an agreeable, open-minded, conscientious, empathetic person and you try to be humble and have an attitude that you're always learning, these are wonderful qualities and they can easily be exploited, right? I, I felt exploited. I felt hijacked when someone came to my place of employment several years ago and gave us this training in so-called gender-affirming care because we were told that this is what you do if you're a good therapist. You learn about this. This is how you help people, right? But there's something that doesn't sit right with you. If you need to balance your temperament, then maybe maybe you need to find where am I conflict avoidant? Where am I too open-minded to the point where sometimes I sacrifice my discernment and know that there are others like you. And if you're worried about getting in trouble, that's a realistic concern. I've had threats against my license. And I might face threats again. That's, but then I would recommend, what do you do for people who live with a lot of fear? What, what about decatastrophizing tools, right? What about learning to live with fear and uncertainty? What about making values-based actions? And what about standing on the ground of the professional competency you do have? Know that there are people... If, if you switch your approach to how you present yourself as a therapist, there are, there are people you can serve in so many different populations. Just because you felt pressured to going along with a narrative that many people in your community do believe in, in and out of the mental health profession, that doesn't mean that you switching how you operate is going to mean that you're not serving anyone. There are so many people who are desperate for the type of help that only you can provide by becoming one of us who is speaking out. So that's how I shifted my practice to working with parents who are worried about their teens, right? Because I'm, I'm not going to spend my whole life and my whole career defending my stance on these issues. I'm going to say, here, here are the populations that I work with. I work with parents who are worried about their youth and, and they're being told that they're bigots who just need to go along and distrust their senses 
everywhere else. And I work with detransitioners, again, mostly outside of my clinical practice, but I'm always open to working with detransitioners clinically. And based on my clinical experiences with these populations, this is the ground that I can stand on. And who, who, who can actually come after you for speaking up for your clients? Well, I'm excited that you have given people such practical advice. And I do think that for a lot of the people that are listening, even just the fear of being canceled or losing their license is enough to get them to just stop asking questions. So I think you gave people some really good, some good tools to even just use on themselves and understand why they're so resistant to asking the questions. Because I think at the very base level, they don't even, they don't want to know where the flaw or the error is because of the fear of backlash from the community. And having been canceled or at least an attempt to be canceled multiple times, it's not fun. It's not an enjoyable experience. But I think at this point that we're at, we're at clearly an inflection point on this issue. And if people don't take the time and put themselves on the chopping block, so to speak, to speak to the error so that we can correct as a civilization, we're not going in a good direction. Do you have a sense of of where this continues on if left unchecked, if people don't actually start to speak up for the truth and advocate for alternatives? Well, the counseling profession itself is under threat right now, just like just like parental rights are under threat, you know? The people who want to eradicate age of consent laws are coming for your children. I know you've interviewed Landon Starbuck and others on this topic. And uh, just like parental rights are being eroded, just like things have gotten to a point in some states where parents who are trying to protect their kids can actually have their children removed and become wards of the state who are subject to potential child trafficking, things have actually gotten to that point in many respects. If we don't stand on what ground we have left as therapists, our profession will become completely captured by ideologues. Now, that's not to say that some of us shouldn't step out of the profession. I regularly question if I even want to be associated with my field anymore, or if I just want to become a consultant who's doing my own thing because our field has become so corrupt. I do think it's empowering for therapists to go through a decatastrophizing process I'm talking like standard like Google CBT decatastrophizing worksheet. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Um, With regard to really asking yourself, what is the worst thing that could happen? How bad would that really be? How likely is it to occur? What would I do to cope? And think about worst case scenario, some board comes and takes your license. What would you do then? You know, for me, as much as I don't want to face threats and allegations again, I know that I could find a way to survive. I know that by because I've spe- because I do speak out, people want to talk to me. And most of them don't care whether I'm licensed or not. They just want my opinion on things. So there are always alternatives. Um, but I think we need some people to leave the field if that's what helps them feel more free. We also need some people to stay in the field and fight and defend the field because if you look at what's happening and our institutions of higher education. I've done many episodes on this, like with Leslie Elliott and Christine Seifen and James Essis, um, Amy Gallagher. Um, I've done several episodes on the ideological capture of our field. Um, So I think some people need to stick around and defend it. 
stand on the ground of the expertise that you have to explain according to the best practices and principles of our field why this ideological capture does not fit with what it is that that we're here to do as therapists and what our professional duty is. Do you think that at this point in the newer generations of mental health professionals that are being raised up in academia, this ideological capture is part of the actual learning process in school now? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I, I know people who are really struggling to figure out if they can even make it through grad school. And is it something that's infiltrated every aspect of the field or is it has it ever in the past been a specialty that then infiltrated or has it always just been something that infiltrated across all of the approaches in the psychological field? I've been trying to figure that out. I went to school, I went to grad school 2010 to 2013 at a place that was pretty progressive at the time. And, but at that time we had one, what I would now describe as like ultra woke person in our class and she was kind of the outlier you know she was the one who gave the presentation on fat phobia and who tried to identify into the queer group when a relatively level-headed instructor had for the sake of a certain activity mind you not for the entirety of our education for the sake of a certain activity wanted to invite the gay, lesbian, bisexual members of the community who were out to have their own kind of group and for the rest of us to have our own group so that we would have discussions and come back together. Um, so we had someone who is heterosexual but tried to identify into the queer group. Um, the same person threw a tantrum on Facebook about the emojis on Facebook having blue eyes because that was racist. So this is somebody who had primed her brain to look mm. for signs of racism and homophobia and everything everywhere. But at the time, we all kind of looked at her like, oh, she's being a little extra, right? And we could all kind of sense like this is coming from her. Mm -hmm. um, now, and I remember a time that I, I was being a little woke where we were, we were learning about microaggressions in mm -hmm. our cultural competency class. And I think I like posted something in our, in our cohort's Facebook group about a way that I was perceiving microaggressions. And I remember someone sort of coming to the defense of the other party in the situation saying like maybe we shouldn't have such a negative filter that like looks for signs of discrimination in places so at that time it wasn't it wasn't like the whole field or our whole cohort hadn't been captured by the wokest voices and i would have been one of the woker voices maybe i don't know i was i was somewhere in that and was, this is a, a while ago now so that's kind of where things were and this was california mind you 2010 to 2013 and now when I talk to people who are in grad school now, the woke stuff is everywhere. You have to take pledges. You have to take these like anti-discrimination pledges, which like sound good in theory until you understand what all the dog whistling is about and what they really mean. Um, and so it does seem like almost every counseling program that I hear from is pretty captured, but I'm trying to get the lay of land. If there's anyone listening to this who wants to maybe come on my show and talk about it, tell me what you're seeing in grad school. Um, I'm always open to getting getting that intel because I receive a lot of questions about this too. I have a question lingering in my locals community waiting for me to answer that's like, 
and I, I get a lot of questions like this. It's like, I'm thinking about going to grad school. I want to become a therapist, but I'm not sure because it seems like maybe the field is a lost cause. What kind of questions should I ask of this institution? And frankly, I don't know, because even if you get through that school, it's, you know, there's going to be someone at your internship or practicum site. There's going to be your licensing board. I just don't know where things are at. I heard recently from a former client who was at a training in the mental health field and the training begun where everyone had to identify themselves and give them how they wanted. Like I'm, you know, I'm a a white, fat, all the different descriptors and everyone had to actually say all those things. And then they reorganized everyone in the group based on their level of privilege. And Mm -hmm. certain people that were considered underprivileged actually didn't have to do certain tests and things like that. So it seems pretty captured to me. If that's how we're starting off a a legitimate training, things are probably pretty far gone. Absolutely. Leslie Ellett's doing good work around that. So she's been on my show. She has um, the Radical Center is her show. Um, Christine Seifen, Critical Therapy Antidote. They just released their book. They're launching their podcast. These are all groups that are doing good work around that stuff. Amazing. Yeah, because I, I do think that there are people that ultimately they want the licensure, right? They want their credential, but they don't want to buy into the way the system is telling them to provide mental health advice. So I think that there's there's got to be a way at this point for people to still enter the field and kind of just, you know, be be aware of what the intent of the organization or the academic field is and to not not get captured. There's got to be a way for somebody to go in and just not get pulled in. Mm -hmm. And if anything, there might be a way to even just become that much better at standing in opposition to it, right? When you understand the the enemy's attack plan, you're able to actually stand against it. But that would take a pretty secure person with a lot of emotional resilience. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. I had dinner last night with someone who's trying to stay sane in grad school and it's hard because you have so much money on the line and you also need the approval of your teachers and supervisors so your reputation is in their hands and if you displease the wrong person it can be really scary Um, one thing I did want to mention while we're on the subject of defending the field for those of us who are choosing to remain in the field is um that the Oregon Board of Licensed Professional Counselors and Therapists is currently taking applications for one LPC board member, so that's a licensed professional counselor board member, and one general public community member, so somebody who's not a therapist, which I guess the board has defined, you know, they must have this many LPCs, this many LMFTs, this many community board members, whatever. Um, So they are currently taking applications, and I have blasted this information to my outlets because I want people who listen to conversations like this one applying for those seats and standing in those positions to defend our field if they can stomach it we absolutely do need that and i've always been a big fan of not just opting out of systems but instead trying to figure out how to break it from the inside before just giving up and i do feel that sometimes people are too quick to just say oh this is broken and leave it behind so I do like that you're giving some really practical advice to people that are willing to stay and be change makers rather than just opt out. And no judgment for those of you that want to opt out. I support that too. I can see benefits on both sides. But I do feel that right now, because we have a population that's so focused on 
this isn't legitimate unless they have a credential. If we don't keep holding those positions, the whole field will be gone if people don't stand in place. So thank you so much for giving some practical advice there. I wanted to end with a couple rapid fire questions. So if you're ready, I'm gonna just start firing them at you. You ready? Uh, ready as I'll ever be. Okay. If you only had one book that you could keep with you for the rest of your life, what would that book be? Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> That's a hard one. Oh, um. If I had only one book for the rest of my life. Yeah, that you had to just keep reading it over and over again. I don't hold me to this, but the one that's actually coming to mind is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Ooh, I've never heard of that book. Can you give it's us about, a book? It's about synopsis? how life is short. Oh. It's, it's, it's um, time management for people who don't just want to try to get it all done, but want to understand and realize that your lifespan is limited. You will never get it all done. And you have to choose your priorities very carefully. And your time doesn't even belong to you. It belongs to other people half the time. Mm. Um, I just say that because it's like if I had to choose one book, it would be something that reminds me how precious my time is. I love that. When you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A veterinarian, a lawyer, um... A singer. <laughs> I feel like you blended all three into into the career you have now, right? <laughs> Caring for things. I feel like there's a lot of similarity between the tactics of a lawyer and a therapist when they're very mm -hmm. skilled. Then the singer. Now you get to be a performer. It's perfect. <laughs> what is the one piece of advice that you would give to parents that are currently watching their young adults just lose their sense of self? What is the most helpful thing a parent can do? Everyone asks me this. Um, hold on to your hats. It's going to be a wild ride. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Take the threat seriously, but buckle down and get strategic. Make sure you're getting enough sleep, hydration, rest, movement. Keep your marriage strong mm -hmm. if you have one. Um, and realize that you're playing a long game and you're not doing this in isolation. The whole culture is working against you. Don't give any credence to the idea that your kid is thinking independently about this. Don't try to reason with them. They're just going to storm out of the room and say things that don't make sense. Consider the social environment. Consider that this is your kid's way of fitting in in this environment. And if you're going to get them out of it, you're going to have to help to find a way to help them save face and navigate this environment differently. Be strategic and feel free to reach out to me for a consultation because I work very carefully with individual circumstances on this issue. And the last one would be for parents that have very young humans, let's say like early middle school, even late elementary, what are some things that they can do to help set their kids up to not fall victim to this? So this is a position I'm in as a step parent. Um, and one is to it, this is really tricky. Find an age-appropriate way to get ahead of the, the fact that people are going to be trying to expose your kids to age-inappropriate things. So um, 
we we managed to talk about neo pronouns and get the kids kind of laughing about how ridiculous the idea of a zizim zero was. Mm-hmm. Um, always encourage your kids' development of critical thinking skills. Um, so, for example, there was a school assignment that our fifth grader was working on that um, he was supposed to pick a side of a debate over um, a certain, let's say, proposed law and uh, argue that side of it in a paper. I thought he was doing a really good job. And he mentioned that the teacher said that the correct answer was actually somewhere in between the two sides. Now, while I, I mean, okay, if you're going to say that there's a correct answer, it is better to say that a balance between the two sides is ideal, sure. But we, we took that as an opportunity to say, the correct answer? What do you mean? And, and get him to think critically about when is it appropriate for a teacher to tell you what the correct answer is and when is it not, mm-hmm. right? In math, there is a correct answer. There's a correct answer of how to spell a word as well. There's a lot of situations in which the teacher has a correct answer. But when you're debating public policy or how to think about a complex issue with many voices, your teacher never gets to tell you what the correct answer is. They get to tell you what, at most, what they would do or how they would vote. And even then, we raise some flags around. So, and, and I think it's important to have those moments come up before it's about anything that impacts the kid. And in a way that helps the kid feel like we're on their side. We're on their side of them getting to have their own thoughts and opinions and come to their own conclusions. So encouraging critical thinking. Um, uh, yeah. I. Do you have any ideas that you want to add to that mix, Fizzy? I'm curious what yours are. I would say one thing, and I work on this with all of our kids, is not being so quick to give away all of your personal authority to an adult just simply because they're older than you. And I find that a lot of parenting techniques can go very wrong in this way because they parent with the because I said so sort of methodology, which doesn't actually help a child understand right from wrong. It just has them let go of any sort of personal authority. So we do often talk to our kids about how adults often do get things wrong. And if an adult is saying something that you don't think is right, we encourage our kids to learn how to respectfully push back. I I know that a lot of parents don't like it when their kid talks back. The whole mentality of kids are seen and not heard. I don't raise my kids that way. I want my kids to feel very comfortable advocating for themselves and know how to do it respectfully but authoritatively so people actually listen to what they're saying and i would say usually when my kids go to other friends houses and they come back they're like wow your kid talks like an adult i'm like yes thank you uh that's one of the ways that they can not fall victim to peer pressure you know i I think helping a child learn how to feel comfortable expressing their opinion and not being so easily swayed by friends you build that in early early years if you don't do that and then you send your kid off to middle school good luck you know i it's one of the things that especially with my son who's about to turn 10 we're working with a family right now where i'm working with the their adopted child who is roughly sev's age and i've got them collaborating on some things as i'm doing behavior strategy with them and i keep reminding them like hey you're going to have to help this kid level up. You can't level down, right? So I'll intentionally have him work with a child that, you know, maybe other people would say is the bad kid 
but I, I trust that he's able to help the other child level up rather than fall victim to the peer pressure of whatever risk he wants to take. So I feel like building, building that up in kids so that they have some sense of personal authority and are able to articulate their perspective is probably the key from my side. So how can our viewers get a hold of you and your work? Where can they see Affirmation Generation? Great. So uh, my name is Stephanie Wynn. Again, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Some Therapist. My website is SomeTherapist.com. Affirmation Generation, you can find at AffirmationGenerationMovie.com. On Twitter, we're at 2022Affirmation. On Instagram, we're at Affirmation Generation. With Affirmation Generation, we're currently getting picked up for global distribution. Uh, so as of today, if you go to affirmationgenerationmovie.com, you can click on, the, click on the Vimeo link and pay $5 to watch the movie. Uh, however, things will be changing as we get picked up by distributors. It should be even easier to find us in various places. We'll try to keep things updated on our website and on our social media presence. Uh, and- my podcast is You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. You can find that at sometherapist.com or on any platform or on YouTube. Where can people connect with you to bring the show to their town? To bring Affirmation Generation to mm-hmm. their town? Um, so you can contact me directly. Uh, I can help as an associate producer connecting with um, any feedback from our producers on how to set that up. Um, so I am. you can email me, hello at sometherapist.com. And do you encourage kids and teens to attend this movie, or is there an age limit that you would recommend? Hmm, That's a good question, and I really think it depends on the maturity of the viewer. I don't think it's appropriate for children. Um, I'm curious, for your perspective, Busy, since you saw it last night, what... I mean, I would I would definitely say the age depends on, on the child and what they've already been exposed to, um, but what age do you think it would be appropriate for? I feel really confident that my 10 and 13 year old could absolutely handle it. I'm not sure I would go like, you know, young elementary, but I know my 10 year old would be able to handle it and understand the concepts. And I think if anything, it would be a motivating factor for him to kind of stand in the truth and be equipped with how to articulate why something might not be the mm-hmm. only only pathway That's so great. I, you know i think for me at, at my son's age he's in going into fourth grade i know that he's emotionally mature enough to handle it but again i agree that it needs to be a personal decision yeah i mean see our kids are around that age they're in third and fifth grade and i don't think they could handle it they can handle you know we do talk to them about the gender stuff because it is important and we've had to help them navigate like understanding why there are tampons in the boys room um but uh but we read their emotional reactions to things and they can really only only handle small doses so i do think it is about um definitely if you're a parent watch the film first and then think about what you know about your kid if your kid is more like busy's kid you know and you've already laid um a solid foundation for having these kinds of conversations then great if your kid is really entrenched in this stuff and combative then you might want to rethink your strategy. I'm not sure that showing them an hour and a half long, really intense film is something that isn't going to provoke a huge behavioral issue. So it really depends on your kid. I love that recommendation. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll make sure in the show notes to post all the links to all the good stuff you've got going on, and we will love to have you back on. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You asked great questions. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time.